agreement that has been concluded is extremely, uh, has, has, a, has a large number of countries, 12, and also accounts for something like 40% of the world's GDP. Free trade has long been a nearly unassailable totem of establishment orthodoxy. Since the 90s, trade agreements like NAFTA have passed with bipartisan support, drastically altering the economic landscape along the way. Earlier this year, the Obama administration joined 11 other governments along the Pacific Rim to sign the latest of these free trade agreements, called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP for short. It's perhaps the largest and most complex trade agreement in history. While some are hailing the TPP as one of the Obama administration's signature accomplishments, its sheer scale has made it politically treacherous. It's an open question whether the Senate will choose to ratify it. So what is this massive and complex agreement, and what are its implications? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Our guest today is Professor Robert Lawrence, an expert on international trade policy here at the Kennedy School, as well as a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Professor Lawrence, thanks for joining us. You're most welcome. Uh, So what is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and how long has it been in the works? Well, uh, it actually, this is a trade agreement that's been in the work for almost a decade. It actually didn't start off with the United States as one of the participants in it. But it sort of snowballed, and eventually we joined four other countries, and, uh, and later, uh, uh, Canada and Mexico came in, and then uh, finally Japan came in. So uh, the agreement that has been concluded is extremely, uh, has, has, a, has a large number of countries, 12, and also accounts for something like 40% of the world's GDP. Mm-hmm. Now, what are the components of this trade agreement? Why is it, what's at stake here? Well, it's a huge, it's, it's, it's agenda. The number of items that are covered are huge. Mm-hmm. These include parts that are traditionally put into trade agreements, like market access. That is to say, by and large, the countries all get rid of their tariff barriers at the border uh, to the goods uh, from each other. But it also includes services, mm-hmm. so things like banking, Uh, or insurance and other kinds of services would be covered. Mm -hmm. It also includes investment, so that firms from each of the countries is allowed, will be allowed to, uh, by and large, uh, invest in all the others. Uh, In addition, it has provisions for things like uh, labor standards, uh, uh, environmental uh, standards and uh, and, um, adherence to environmental agreements, There are a host of provisions which relate to things like intellectual property, uh, to regulatory coherence, and I could go on. Mm -hmm. So it's got uh, 29, I think, different sections to it Mm -hmm. and runs into something like 6,000 pages. So it is a very elaborate and uh, comprehensive agreement. One of the criticisms has been that for such a comprehensive agreement, uh, for it to be negotiated in secret... Uh, and then only to be released uh, just just recently uh, provides very little uh, ability for the general population to have a full opinion on its uh, the whole breadth of what it does. Well, I, I think it, it you know there are arguments on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the question is whether you it's it, it's difficult to negotiate in a fishbowl. 
uh, you know, they say you things that shouldn't be see, see being made are things like laws and, and sausages. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, you know, we have uh, statutory provisions now that we have an agreement. Uh, people can see it uh, in full. Uh, there have uh, continuously been consultations uh, between uh, the negotiators and uh, representatives from uh, the private sector, from non-governmental organizations, and from unions, uh, as well as members of Congress. So, uh, yes, it hasn't been as transparent as it might have been, uh, but I think in some cases people are a bit disingenuous because um, all members of Congress have had, uh, the uh, and, and these other representatives, have had the ability to get access uh, to the agreement as it has been uh, negotiated. Now that the text has been revealed, were there any provisions that stuck out to you as being particularly important? Well, I think, you know, uh, it it is a very important agreement in terms of its uh, comprehensiveness. Mm -hmm. I think a number of areas where, uh, which have been controversial Uh, also uh, uh, were, in a sense, um, uh, catered to. So, as as, as one example, uh, the Australians in particular were very concerned about their uh, um, uh, cigarette regulations. They have a plain packaging uh, regulation, and they were concerned that it uh, should not be challengeable under the investor-state dispute settlement provision. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out now we read that uh, uh, tobacco has been excluded from the uh, uh, Australian concession. Uh, you, you mentioned the investor state dispute settlement. Could you actually explain what that is? That, because that's sure. also a controversial... Yes. Although we have something like 3,000 of these investor state dispute settlement agreements mm-hmm. in what are called uh, bits or bilateral investment treaties. Mm-hmm. And basically, this gives uh, private foreign firms the right to challenge governments uh, if they have had their assets expropriated. And um, unlike other provisions in the agreement, which really uh, can be disputed if, if there are infractions, Uh, by governments, so a government-to-government dispute settlement system. In this case, if a private investor is expropriated, they have the right to uh, challenge the government's expropriation in front of an international panel of three three panelists, usually jurists, and uh, and obtain binding arbitration. Mm -hmm. So um, this is an unusual treatment and um, some believe that it uh, provides uh, foreign investors excessive uh, protection, in particular uh, from um, measures which are taken uh, in the public interest, things like um, uh, maybe health and safety regulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if a foreign investor believes uh, uh, that, uh, let's go back to the, uh, uh, to the Australian tobacco case, mm-hmm. um, when Australia pa- passed its uh, plain packaging uh, uh, provisions, it basically said that uh, uh, cigarette companies uh, shouldn't be allowed to uh, put their trademarks on the cigarette package. And uh, uh, they, the Australian government was actually sued uh, uh, in, because uh, um, Philip Morris 
alleged that this was depriving them of, uh, of, of intellectual property, basically mm-hmm. their, their trademark. Uh, so, so that would be a, a, an example, and and uh, uh, people are concerned that uh, the ability to claim that a foreign government has uh, expropriated you by passing a regulation, which it might have done for health or safety reasons, uh, could could lead uh, the governments uh, to. Um, in a sense, it's giving it's giving foreign firms better treatment than you give domestic firms, mm-hmm. and it could also uh, lead governments to be more reluctant to pass those kinds of regulations. Right now, there is language in the agreement as it has come out, which actually stipulates that governments do have the right to regulate uh, for uh, health and safety uh, reasons, and that that is not uh, challengeable. Uh, but you know, lawyers are clever, and uh, it's it's hard to know exactly uh, uh, whether those provisions are, are going to be challenged or not. And in, uh, the fact remains, when it comes to the United States, uh, although the U.S. government has been challenged, it has never lost a case in uh, one of these disputes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, so uh, those who advocate these provisions. Uh, point to the need for them because uh, um, in several countries uh, there are questions that can be raised about the impartiality of their of their uh, legal processes. Now, why isn't this something that can be accomplished just through domestic courts in each individual country? Well, that's the whole point. Do you would you trust a Vietnamese court's impartiality? Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, the courts in Vietnam are subject to a huge government influence. And so, um, and, and these provisions uh, arose precisely because you can look at objective ratings, uh, even of several countries that are uh, in Europe, uh, Croatia or Bulgaria or Romania. Mm-hmm. And what you'll discover is that their court system leave a lot to be desired. I think when it comes to, uh, you know, Germany or the United Kingdom or Japan, uh, we could have faith in their court systems. Uh, But some other countries, uh, I I think questions would be raised. Mm -hmm. And so I I think also from the standpoint of the U.S., there's the reluctance to uh, actually make these judgments explicit as to who has a uh, a trustworthy uh, legal system and who doesn't. And so... The, the fallback position is just simply to include them in all the agreements. I think one of the other criticisms is a larger criticism of globalization in general, which is uh, that when we open up trade, we tend to see jobs, manufacturing jobs especially, uh, to poorer countries where wages are lower, uh, standards are lower for, for workers. Um, National Bureau of Economic Research estimated that in between uh, 1999 and 2011, uh, between two and 2.4 million U.S. factory jobs were lost to China. Do you, do you think that's do you think that's a, a worthy concern? Well, uh, there ha- there have been, of course, uh, there have been jobs that have been lost uh, to China and to uh, other other countries. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is, firstly, in the case of China. Um, I think that uh, it wasn't because we signed a trade agreement with China. China did join the World Trade Organization, 
But actually, this didn't involve us opening our market to China when, when she joined the, uh, the World Trade Organization. China has become highly competitive. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a consequence, there has been dislocation. And uh, while I might differ as to the exact number uh, with the estimates of others, I, I think it's very clear that a, a, a large number of uh, jobs uh, have been lost in U.S. manufacturing. Now, we need to uh, uh, see that uh, balanced against those costs have been the benefits that have accrued to us uh, from that trade. And um, we estimate, we do, uh, I, I, we've done some sort of um, benefit cost calculations in which we, we look at the costs uh, and then we look at the benefits and we get ratios on the order of 15 or 20 to 1. That is to say, the benefits are 15 to 20 times the costs. So I would not uh, say there aren't any costs, mm -hmm. uh, but, and, and you know one of the features of trade is that it does create winners and losers. And anyone who says that they're only winners, I, I, I think, is, is lying to you. Mm. Now, when you're, you're counting benefit, are you speaking in dollars? Or are you speaking in uh, I'm, what's I'm, the... Well, I'm talking about uh, the improvements in American living standards that come both on the import side from being able to buy, uh, job, uh, to buy goods more cheaply and to have greater choice uh, when it comes to, to importing. And I'm talking about the jobs that are created in our export industries, which typically pay workers higher wages. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the major way in which we, we've captured the benefits. Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, it isn't only trade in goods, and this, it's a very important dimension of this particular agreement, and that is that the United States is a major um, uh, creator of intellectual, uh, uh, intellectual know-how. And so securing the enforcement of intellectual property is a, is a hugely, not only does it give uh, uh, America benefits in the short run, those firms who have innovative, innovated, but it also encourages greater innovation mm -hmm. and therefore uh, faster growth. Mm -hmm. So there are a variety of channels through which uh, more open trade uh, raises our living standards. A final point that I would emphasize is that um, the effects of trade liberalization are actually very progressive in the sense that poor people consume and spend much more of their, uh, of their spending on goods. Uh, and it is goods prices that are most favorably affected by trade. We get cheaper goods. Mm -hmm. So a poor person will spend more money on food, they, uh, uh, more of their budget on clothing, on footwear, on, on even automobiles. Rich people spend much more of their money on services which are not so traded. Mm -hmm. So when you see simulations of what is the effect of this trade, what you find is that it, it has enhanced the incomes of poorer people by much greater percentages than it has enhanced the incomes of wealthy people. So this this agreement obviously includes 12 countries. We have a number of other trade agreements, uh, free trade agreements in place already. Uh, but that this isn't the whole picture. This may you might even see this as just the start. Yes, I mean, what has happened is that um, uh, we have been unable to make much progress at the World Trade Organization, the big multilateral institution 
with uh, uh, over 160 members. And so uh, U.S. Um, uh, uh, has, has chosen to follow a, 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 a different strategy as of many other countries by signing regional agreements with countries that are more willing to liberalize uh, than the vast number uh, at the World Trade Organization. And so in addition to this uh, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, if, if it is implemented, firstly, there will be other countries who will want to exceed. Uh, it is very likely, for instance, that South Korea uh, will apply. It's likely that Thailand will. Indonesia has indicated perhaps a willingness. So this Trans-Pacific Partnership itself could grow. Uh, at the same time, we're also going, we also in the process of negotiating with Europe, the so-called so TTIP. And so that's going to bring in another vast part of the uh, world economy into, uh, into a trade agreement, which goes far beyond simply removing border barriers and also deals with these issues of, um, of, of, of getting more conformity in, in regulations and behind the border kinds of of barriers. And I, um, and I believe that um, uh, if this process is successful, it is also going to uh, put pressure um, both on countries who are outside this agreement uh, to either negotiate agreements of their own or to seek to join this one, or ideally to join all uh, at the World Trade Organization. And so I think it's part of a more coherent uh, uh, trade strategy designed to uh, liberalize uh, markets around the world uh, and um, uh, also allow those who, who want to go uh, forward in putting uh, provisions like labor standards and environmental standards into trade agreements to actually do so. Mm -hmm. It has proven impossible uh, to introduce labor standards and environmental considerations uh, into the multilateral organization, the World Trade Organization. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things about the TPP when it was announced was the, uh, I guess, I don't know how you would describe them, the corollary agreement uh, that happened specifically with Vietnam over uh, working conditions, et cetera, which weren't part of the core TPP agreement. Is that something, uh, can you explain what that was and is that something that yeah. we can expect to see in the future? Well, there were very detailed provisions uh, which uh, the U.S. insisted upon uh, as a condition for Vietnam's accession. And this goes to the fact that um, at the moment uh, there aren't really free unions in Vietnam and they're dominated by the government. And uh, the U.S. has given them, uh, I think it's five years, to, uh, to change that situation. And in the event they do not, uh, we uh, can withdraw concessions that we have uh, made to them. So uh, this is a way to, to promote an improvement in their uh, labor rights. Uh, similarly, uh, all of the signatories uh, to this agreement have agreed to enforce uh, the CITES uh, Convention, which is uh, trade uh, which which which, which uh, constrains uh, trade in um, in in animals, uh, and um, so and and preserves uh, endangered species. So uh, even though there is a multilateral environmental agreement, uh, it doesn't have the force of a trade agreement in the sense that um, uh, countries can't 
uh, retaliate using trade instruments if other countries don't adhere to that to that agreement. Mm-hmm. Now they can. So, so this is an agreement uh, which, and, and there are also provisions with respect to Malaysia uh, and its uh, uh, trafficking uh, uh, violations or failure to enforce uh, child trafficking, um, which have to be adhered to. So, so I think this is a, a way to advance these, uh, these social concerns um, uh, as well as the, uh, the narrower trade interests. And it's something which we couldn't do in the context of the of the World Trade Organization, where uh, countries veto our efforts in these in this regard. Mm-hmm. But by the way, let me let me just add one more thing. I oh, do want to yeah. say, yeah, sure. People who believe that this agreement uh, ought to uh, um, inf- uh, contain labor standards have kind of argued against the agreement on the grounds that it isn't going to be enforced adequately. And uh, from my vantage point, uh, I feel that this is actually a strange position to have because um, surely you have to believe uh, that we're going to be better off in having an agreement than having no agreement. Our ability to promote these standards, both in the labor and the environmental area, is surely going to be stronger if we actually uh, pass the agreement than in the absence. Mm-hmm. And so it's not perfect, and indeed uh, it will be incumbent upon uh, uh, us to continue to put pressure on governments, to, and ours uh, uh, as well as others, to enforce the agreement. But nonetheless, it seems to me we're much better off having it uh, than, than not having it. All right. Well, Professor Robert Lawrence... Thank you so much for coming on PolicyCast today. Really appreciate it. You're most welcome. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Laura Colarusso at the Boston Globe. And, of course, to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter.
our ability to promote these standards, both in the labor and the environmental area, is surely going to be stronger if we actually uh, pass the agreement 